Yeah, um, I, I have a, I have things to say, but I will wait until okay. again because there were things that needed to be said. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, I no. might be. I think I might be the only one who ended up liking this movie better this time than the last time I saw it. Really, mine's I, definitely I, worse. I, I have things <laughs> that I want to say. That's all I will. That's all I will tease. Oh my God, I have. So there's this thing that I'm doing right now <laughs> um which we can talk later about but i'm writing down every single person of color that i see um listed in the imdb and their names like flex anderson as kadeem or i want to talk about flex anderson too <laughs> can we talk about like all the bipoc people who are superstars who are yes. like not stars in this yes. movie this is this is exactly what this is supposed to be about. So it's like crazy. <laughs> I know. I had the IMDb link up and I'm like, when was that person in this? <laughs> okay. Anywho, so let's get started. Yo TC, what time is it? Mm, I think it's time for a makeover. <laughs> Welcome back to Movie Makeover Podcast. Um, we are doing a new series this time around. We've decided to mix some things up with Movie Makeover, and we are doing our series called When We See Us, which will be a limited series, um, and we have some pretty great things ahead. But the difference with When We See Us is we will be talking about the importance of representation on screen, the political side of popcorn movies, and pulling away from the cis white male narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm Siege. And I am your co-host, Tony Curtis. All right, Tony, why don't you tell them what's also different about our new process, our new series? Well, you know, we thought being the, the male uh, <laughs> men, of, men of color that we are, um, that it, it, we really were kind of missing out on the side of the conversation by not including um, a female voice. And so uh, just to kind of make this just more inclusive and to get even more representation and uh, more of a, uh, you know, a personal reflection of what representation means, uh, we brought in a very close friend of ours. Uh, so we want to introduce you guys to our co-host for this When We See Us series, um, Christine. Christine, if you could, um, just introduce yourself a bit and just share a little bit about, you know, our shared history and, you know, what you can contribute to this, uh, this conversation. Hello, Movie Makeover fans. I am the female voice that will be joining you <laughs> <laughs> this season. I'm super excited to be a part of it. Um, I'm Christine Zwick. I'm the artist behind Curated Dry Goods. I paint, I illustrate, I dip my toe in the podcast waters every now and again. And it's sort of this ongoing art project where I dissect the relationship between art and mental health. And I'm a first-generation Filipino-American. I'm a woman. I live in the Deep South. I'm a proud mental health patient and advocate. And TC and CJ and I go back a long time. I think we've known each other almost 20 years at this point. Exactly. Uh, 
we grew up together in Florida, where I still am. Uh, we've experienced a lot together. And I think this friendship is one of those, at this point, you can't get rid of them, right? Like they're just part of your life until you're old in the nursing home. Yeah, so. like bunions. <laughs> <laughs> what so. I heard and what I hope our listeners heard were credentials. She knows <laughs> what she's talking about. So uh, absolutely love it. Um, and as our new co-host, Christine uh, gets first choice in our When We See Us series. And Christine's first choice was 1999's She's All That. I'm All- regretting it. <laughs> <laughs> Already. Love it. You, we love it when it starts off like that. You know, I had a soft spot for this movie, and that's why I chose it, because um, I probably rented it from the Blockbuster like once a month <laughs> the year it came out. And I know it almost too well, but then I watched it again, and I really questioned everything that I liked about it. Um, And watching it again now through this lens of representation, um, there's a lot to unpack with this movie. Absolutely. T, what is your history with this? You know, what's really interesting is that I feel like I've seen this movie the most with Christine. (laughs) I think I've seen it at least like three times with you. Um, But yeah, this movie is really nostalgia for me. I think this movie came out around the time that we were like late elementary school, early middle school, and like popularity started to become important and like who was cool and who wasn't. So I think all of these like really um, flat generalizations of the popular kid and the popular girl and the nerdy girl all kind of made sense to us in a different way when we were then because we were just kind of getting the first impressions of it. We hadn't experienced it to compare it to real life to understand how kind of ridiculous <laughs> this whole movie really is um but i will say that i when christine recommended she's all that i thought i was going to end up hating this i thought it was going to be uh just uh you know misogynist and there was going to be a lot of just like racial stuff that was going to make me uncomfortable and those things are true <laughs> but there is something about a makeover movie that i just always feel is very charming and i feel that's probably the thing that christine were was attracted to and maybe uh, this idea of just yeah, i this... chose to focus on the charm not the misogyny and now <laughs> <laughs> i focus a little more on that yeah yeah siege what what, what do you remember of this movie so i'm not gonna lie this was one of those movies to where i never really watched when we were in high school i didn't watch it until like maybe even after college because there was just so many things to choose from and i was really big into like television at that time um and so i've seen it once before and i kind of remembered it as like this lip gloss i think i had seen like um not another teen movie before I saw this, you know, in, in, in detail. So I'd only seen the satire version. Rewatching it, I'm gonna, I'm actually going to say that I enjoyed it more than I was expecting to, which is why I'm really glad that Christine is joining us because I was like, yeah, I was, I like, there were so many things that are obviously to hate and talk about, but there were also many things where I'm like, when you really take a step back, this movie was doing and saying something that I don't think we get it cre- give it credit for because it's just written off as like another 17 magazine made into a movie. You know what I'm saying? And I think written on paper, the plot comes off worse than 
it actually is in the sense that there's a lesson that gets learned by the cis male white lead you know <laughs> he, he, like there's there's an evolution to his character where he kind of transcends this kind of really sexist and this you know misogynistic tone from the earlier movie but and when you're talking about this movie that's kind of the only thing that really comes up in 2020 at least for me um until this rewatch yeah, and I think watching it this time, I was actually surprised how many BIPOC characters there are, mm-hmm. because I think I only remembered maybe two or three, but there's actually a few of them. Not that they have any impact on the storyline <laughs> whatsoever, but I was surprised to see that there was more than the three or four that I remembered. I, I agree with that. I, I was like, wow, there's there's a lot of them in here. I'm surprised they don't have like you know, story roles or like, like, <laughs> yeah. or like, like a plot Speaking or parts. like anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. There were certain moments where I was like, Oh, this person is here. What are we going to do with them? Oh, nothing. Okay. You know, like, yeah. It was like <laughs> yeah. And I, I'll, I'll talk about this later too, but I kept trying to write down the names of the BIPOC characters during the movie. And I realized no one ever says their names except for maybe Preston. Like I caught his name and that's about it. I can't wait to talk about Preston because they did Dulé Hill so wrong. wrong. Like, so wrong. Dulé like, Hill I'm... is the standout of this movie, I think. He's fantastic. The entire time, I was just like, I, I can dig this representation. I can dig this upper-class Black kid who kind of says it how it is. And, like, him and Gabrielle Union both have parts that I'm, I was really on board with. Okay, so we will have to talk about that. I'm so excited. But before we do, let's get into the previews where we do the critics review, the summary, actors, and some trivia. Uh, TC, why don't you hit us up? We're going to start with the summary of She's All That. Uh, Stung when his bombshell girlfriend abruptly dumps him for a TV celebrity, big man on campus Zach Seiler, played by Freddie Prince Jr., wagers with a classmate that he can quickly turn any girl, even the school's biggest geek, Lainey Boggs, into the prom queen. He wasn't, however, betting on falling in love. After an amazing makeover, Lainey is transformed from a nobody to a knockout. But when she learns of Zack's deception, it could ruin any chance he had with his newfound dream girl. With the hip and modern soundtrack and the hilarious story that audiences love, this great comedy is all that. Is it, though? (laughs) There are a few things that I have. First of all, amazing trans like makeover i mean again there are so many uh, this trope is clearly called out in the, the girl wore glasses <laughs> yeah uh, i mean when they were looking to just to pick the person to make over they they literally like identify so many other people i'm like no that is in fact a challenge if you were going against hetero norms and high school expectations to have someone who is plus size to have someone who is a little less um polite or like they were just yeah someone who's not a a white person to to see a skinny white woman with glasses and be like oh can we make it happen i don't know (laughs) she likes painting she's a loser (laughs) um i do have the critics response to this because actually surprisingly the critics didn't think much of this movie either when it first came out. Um, IMDb gives it a 5.9. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 41%. And Roger Ebert gave it a 2.5 stars. This is actually one of the last films that he printed and reviewed, like that was the review that was printed. Um, he gave it 2.5 stars. And he basically said, she's all that is not a great movie, but it has its moments, which 
That about sums it up. Honestly, sums it up. yeah, that's a great review. <laughs> it's not a good movie, but it has its moments. <laughs> um, so let's. Do you guys want to go through the cast real fast? Just kind of talk through who our main characters are, just so you know we can identify the the big hitters, the important players. I say we name like the really big ones, and then any. A uh, character of color, and that's it. Like everyone else. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Well, you know, the movie stars pretty Freddie. The movie stars Freddie Prince Jr. Um, the one thing I want to point out about Freddie Prince Jr., which I told you guys, and you didn't even know, was that Freddie Prince Jr. is full-blooded Puerto Rican. This guy has been whitewashed in every movie he's ever been in, this one included. And to me, as someone who is half Puerto Rican, I really feel that that's like i don't know that, that what's the opposite of representation i just I, <laughs> I don't know what it means for this guy to have completely stripped away his heritage and not just this movie but every movie he was in up until his tv show i think he started to embrace his latino culture but um it's just it was really strange that you guys hadn't hadn't even known that he was puerto rican no idea. And I had to put in my notes that when I say BIPOC, I don't mean Freddie Prince Jr. Because <laughs> he is, but he's white passing in this movie. So he doesn't count. God bless his Puerto Rican soul. Thank you so much. But I he, wanted he's to not point Puerto out. Rican in this movie. Yeah, I wanted to point out that this is like prime example of passing privilege. Like for us to go the entire movie. And as you said, he is a Puerto Rican uh, he is of Puerto Rican descent, yet you could not tell that from this movie alone. In fact, he has white like, parents in the movie. But yeah, exactly. And it's not that it needed to be, but as we are going to talk about uh, in this series, I think the story changes when you're talking about a popular student of color and then the expectations of going to college. Like his storyline is so much more interesting if we're talking about a Latinx or Puerto Rican male lead than the white dude that we're given i don't know <laughs> who is like legacy to this university who is a shoe-in who has so many acceptance letters he can't even bother to like pick the one he wants the most there's a point in the film where he compares choosing colleges to the to the death of laney's mother <laughs> to say i also know struggle <laughs> I too know why the cage birds sing. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, like I that that was just a really shocking moment, and uh, I think that kind of encompasses how I felt about Freddie Prince Jr. throughout this entire movie. But I, I do want to move on because we do have some other pe notable people I want to talk about. Rachel Lee Cook is is Rachel Lee Cook. I don't really have much to say about her. She does a fine job. Uh, Matthew Lillard. I know CJ has feelings about him. I love him so much. And for those of those, for those of you who know. Scream is literally my favorite movie, and I feel like Matthew Litter can do no wrong in, in that role. So to see him again, especially in the 90s, just made me happy. It just did. I, I found him to be the worst character in this movie. Um, see, I didn't, and I think that when... I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about him, but I thought that his character was a great example of both the upcoming wave of reality tv stars and like what they're preoccupied and then even the quote unquote fame or following they get from high school students i thought that was really important and then also i think a very big part of even like the little scene that we get of him in on actually on the real world which his character is uh, brought into it's him 
kind of being the out of place, out of touch white dude in the series. And like, it's not like they are purposely making that point, but it is clearly a point that it can be said that he is like this doofus, childish, immature white guy who didn't even last that long in the real world house. Um, so I just thought that that was interesting. Kella, what do you think about this? I think he plays the character well, and the character is a jackass. So I think he, I think his persona sort of thrives in this era of tele or movies. And uh, I think when I think of Matthew Lillard, I think of this character. Okay, real question though, and this is for the both of you: Who is more fuckable, Matthew Lillard or Freddie Prince Jr.? Freddie Prince Jr. Freddie Prince Jr. He just yeah. is, and I, like, I, I don't feel good about that statement. It's just a fact. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Well, we have some other heartthrobs in this movie. Mr. Paul Walker is in this movie. Rest in peace. Um, I, and truly, I will I, say, as a gay man, he is like at the top of the list in terms of fuckability. Like, Paul okay. Walker in this role is just like bang bust. Like, I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Is it his douchiness that adds to it? We know I have problems, yes. I mean, like, honestly, <laughs> I was looking at this and I was like, Paul Walker's character is absolutely who I would have been in love with in high school. And I hate myself for it, but it's just the facts. I and think Christine married Paul Walker from this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. He was the worst for me. Because I think he he makes Freddie Prince's sexism look palatable because he's overtly misogynistic great point that's what makes him unbearable in the movie cutie unbearable i was gonna say the same thing about um dule hill um who is the the next in the the guys packed um he is the one man of color who has a real speaking role because usher doesn't um and i as much as there's so many things i really like about his character the way he kind of stood up for himself and stood up for the people around him he was the only one who was actually kind and decent to laney throughout the whole time asking if she wanted to play volleyball asking how she was doing welcoming her to his to his house you know um gabrielle union too uh was the other one who was kind of looking out for Lainey being like, Hey, asking Dulé if she, he knew about the bet and you know what he had to do with it. And so it seemed like those two were the only ones who were like looking out for Lainey. So I really liked that representation, but I do think both of those characters were only there to serve white people. That's very interesting. And I think that this could just bring us to our next segment, which would be the representation report. And with the representation report, we're going to call out any BIPOC characters and or marginalized characters and kind of talk about how the movie handles them and number one on my list is actually gabrielle union uh it should be dule hill if i'm going to be honest in terms of speaking role but gabrielle union is like who i remember from this movie so she just made my number one and i felt like her name her character's name is katie and i thought that she would have a bigger role i thought that she would have some kind of subplot and her character just went nowhere and i want to talk about how you guys feel about gabrielle union's character in this movie i think gabrielle is arguably the best actress in the movie and yeah. really i could have seen her as taylor 
but that's obviously not what the casting directors wanted. So I thought <laughs> that the speaking parts she had, she really did a good job for like those five minutes of like speaking that she has. And I think, yeah, like I think if, if it was a, a lead that was a BIPOC character, I would like to see Gabrielle Union as Taylor. And what I liked about Gabrielle Union too, uh, which I kind of mentioned was how she kind of looked out for Lainey. Cause it, to me, it seems like the reason why Gabrielle Union and Dulé Hill treat Lainey the way they do is because they know what it's like to be in this world where they're not, you know, people don't say hello to them when they walk into a room or people don't instantly go to hang out with them. And so they're constantly having to, you know, try to strive in the white world. And so they kind of know what the outsider feels like. But maybe that's giving the movie too much credit. I would say, see, I read that completely differently. And I love that I'm, I'm really enjoying hearing this. I felt like Gabrielle kind of had like this... Uh, if, if we're going to use another movie, Mean Girl, she felt like the Gretchen, where she was just waiting for Taylor, Tyler, Taylor, whatever, to be, knocked, <laughs> to be knocked off her pedestal and kind of like step into the place. And she even kind of like the look she gives um, Rachel Lee Cook's character on the beach kind of to me read as, are you a challenge? Or are you someone who I could use to my benefit? Which to me, anyway, just made her a more interesting character. I'm not saying that uh, anything other than I liked what I was getting from it, but if you guys saw something else, I, I'm completely there for it. Yeah, I think I wish I would have saw more of her. Yeah, I think that I think, character had more to give. And I, you know, for that beach scene, I think my my walk away from that moment was she liked that Rachel Lee Cook kind of stood up for herself in that moment where that other girl was challenging her. Um, and I think that's what she kind of gravitated toward was like, this isn't just another like walking Barbie doll. This is someone who's going to have a little bit of personality to him and who isn't just going to follow Taylor doing whatever. And I think she, res I thought I wrote down real respects real. <laughs> when I was talking about the relationship between Gabrielle Union and, and uh, Rachel Lee Cook. Well, what's interesting about Gabrielle Union's character, uh, her and little Kim, and uh, who plays Alex, which I thought was an amazing. I was like, oh, wow, little Kim's in this. <laughs> Why is little Kim in this? <laughs> I completely forgot she was in this. Well, it feels, it does feel like whoever casted this movie just went down the list of 17 magazine and like if you were on the cover or if you were had any kind of feature they just picked you up and put you in casting like that's how it feels i don't know if that's what was done i, I really wish i could find or i could remember what the promotion for this movie was like because it feels very mtv influence not just by having the real world sandwich in but by having little kim and usher in there as well it just feels like they were really trying to make this an mtv kind of movie and it feels like an mtv movie when i think back on it absolutely but what but with that i think that what's interesting is we even we have gabrielle union little kim and then tamara Mello, who plays chandler they're all like Taylor's best friend squad. But how I read that in terms of like people of color and representation, it was great to see the popular kids uh, be diverse, but they're all second cheer to this white girl, Taylor. And it seems to me like Taylor's only cool because she has like this core group of uh, BIPOC friends. You know what I'm saying? And like, that's where her cash comes from. Her, her uh, entire popularity is built on being the white girl who's able to not only have, but also rule 
the the prettiest black girl in school and xyz and so on and so forth can i just say that tamra Mello is the whole reason that i thought by the time we got to high school i could wear sports bras or shirts <laughs> and like i was like waiting for like my abs to come in and like meanwhile she's like this 30 year old woman playing a teenager but you know funny fact about tamra mellon is that i had to look on her imdb to actually see what race and ethnicity she was because i think i googled that as well i yeah. did too i literally had to google it and i was going to ask you guys if we considered her bipoc because you i think know, she is but does she present herself as so? she's sort of this like racially ambiguous catch-all which i think happens a lot as an asian woman when i look for other asians in film or television of a certain era there's always this like kind of brown person and like we don't know exactly what they are so that's like the catch-all for like are you asian are you spanish are you mixed race like that's tamra mellow in this movie it's like oh jessica alba is busy okay we know who to call <laughs> exactly <laughs> Like, this just racially, uh, like, I don't know quite what they are. It looks like they're a little something. Exotic. (laughs) Exotic is, like, the exact word I feel like the casting agent went. It's like, ooh, you have, like, this exotic look. We can put you in anything. Um, Yes. You you know what's funny, Siege? You were talking about how the white characters surround themselves with people of color. And to me, it really felt like this movie used people of color for cultural appropriation. And I mean, like, like there's even one part where, uh, fucking (laughs) what's this? I, uh, Oh my God, Paul Walker. There's even one part where Paul Walker is like talking like hood vernacular and Dulé Hill says on behalf of all black people please shut up like it it feels like they were using the black people for coolness like that's the only reason Usher is in this movie yes all right so I I have such a I have a strong reaction whenever I see black people used as a shortcut to cool and it's also really interesting at the idea of um, Dulé Hill saying the words Speaking on behalf of all Black people, because Black people just don't do that. <laughs> yeah, you're a monolith. <laughs> but, but also, like, like I, uh, here's the thing, because I'm about to say something that completely contradicts what I just said. Oh, <laughs> but I was so I can't ready say. to cheer you up. <laughs> well, well, what I mean by that is we don't say, on behalf of all Black people, please stop speaking for us. We don't do that. But we will say what I'm about to say, which is, there is a part in the movie where um, I think Usher is at, we're at the dance and Usher is like, go down the line. Everyone split up and let's move down the line. I was like, no black person says go down the line. That is called the soul train. <laughs> we're on yeah. the soul train line right now. And I don't know who wrote this script, but no black person would ever say, hey, part like the Red Sea, and then let's do down the line because that's what I'm trying to get you to do. We know shorthand for Soul Train. We would say Soul Train. If you didn't know what Soul Train was, every Black person on the floor would tell you what it is and you would understand. <laughs> and also on IMDb, Usher doesn't have a name. Yeah, it's just campus, campus DJ. DJ. <laughs> why does this DJ have a, why does this campus have a DJ? What school had a DJ? Is he a student? Does he interact with other students? <laughs> it's it, it, really, yeah. Other than like lifting up other white people and giving them like street cred, I don't understand the role that any person of color plays in this movie 
other than those things. And I think that's kind of the most disappointing thing when I'm reviewing all these people. Even, can I just talk about a little bit Felix Anderson, who makes a cameo in the real world scene um, as the African? Yes, uh, wearing the yes. kente cloth. He's yes. wearing the kente cloth. In LA. I, <laughs> in that scene specifically he's talking to matthew lillard and he's like hey bro can you respect me and respect the other people in this house and matthew lillard has a huge problem with it and i was just like wow what a great little microcosm of like kind of the ongoing conflict of this movie of just white people not understanding what they're doing wrong um because i i, I don't know i i thought it was very interesting that that scene even existed or the fact that um, he was wearing kentai cloth and speaking in an accent at all in the real world. Yes, that's a, go ahead. You know, speaking of kentai cloth, did we notice that Lainey only wears like Indian and East Asian saris or like tunics? And like, Ooh. I think it's meant to be like, oh, she's like this alternative person. Like she doesn't shop in a mall. And it's like, where does she go? Like an Indian cultural store? Like, and I love that's that, all she wears. I love that you pointed that out because another person of color in the cast is Debbie Morgan, who plays the art teacher. And I, um, a, I love her from a lot of things. Again, huge television person. So she was on, uh, she's, has soap opera fame and then also how i know her is as to see her from charmed um but anyway she um she plays the teacher and the teacher even calls laney out in that moment because she makes some painting that's about like the hardship of of mogadishu yeah yeah exactly and it's and- got the notorious big <laughs> at the top and i think the assignment was something that represents you Exactly. And I thought that that was a great moment. Again, you get little flashes of like true black people and what would be in-depth character if they were given any real screen time. But I thought the idea of the teacher being like, no, like how does that represent you? Like you live in this suburb and you are no way related to this problem. So I appreciate you for bringing awareness to it, but it it does feel like a co-opting of their struggle in order to paint yourself pun intended as dark or mysterious or whatever can i just say that there was another teacher very similar to this in the movie 10 things i hate about you like this like black teacher who kind of called student the white kids out for like acting a fool like i i don't know if this is a trope or not this whole like strict black teacher or black teacher that calls it as it is but it's something i've seen like where they'll do that to like spark a white character's you know creativity or their ambition and then we never hear anything from them again or they never end up thanking that teacher that teacher gets no recognition for it it's it's just something i've noticed in the few movies from this era would she be considered like the sage for laney I, I, I feel a little bit because not only does she come in and kind of give her that advice, but at the end, she comes in and solves Lainey's college problems. You know, it's like, like the project, which we didn't even really see presented in class, um, apparently was so amazing that the teacher went out of her way to contact every single um, person she knew to make sure that Lainey got a good college recommendation. And that feels very much a uh, magical Negro, <laughs> almost. Yeah, for sure. That's the vibe that I got from it, that she wasn't, we didn't really know about this teacher, but she's there to help Lainey have her artistic breakthrough. Yeah. And I, I mean, how do you guys feel about this idea of there 
being diversity in the film, but all the characters are just there to serve white people. Like, does that count as diversity? Does that count as representation even? Just to have people who aren't representing their, you know, their group in any significant way? I, I don't know. Yeah, I, think I don't know either. I was um, going to say that I think that it's, uh, if, when we're talking about representation and seeing yourself at TC, you always love to say you can't be what you can't see. I think that you pointed out Dulé Hill being considered one of the popular guys, having just as much money. He's not like struggling or on the other side of the tracks or anything like that. Um, and it's just kind of being accepted in this school that everyone is diverse and the hierarchy isn't like Mean Girls where it's, you know, the cool black kids and they are a monolith and they hang out together. It's kind of blended. I do think there is some, um, some credit should be given to that. But I also feel like the fact that their narratives are all reduced as sidekicks um, and we don't really get to see them interact or behave on their own um, is, is a huge minus. Yeah, and I think I noticed with Preston Dulé Hill's character is that anytime like Dean or Paul Walker would go on a tirade, he's just there to like validate or invalidate what Paul Walker is saying. We don't ever really get to know Preston. I mean, we know Dean is like this aggressor, misogynistic, like steroided out, like dude. And, <laughs> and Preston, there's literally a scene where where. Paul Walker is saying something to Freddie Prinze Jr. And Preston is literally maybe like five yards back, which I don't know why else you would be five yards back for a conversation you're in, <laughs> except for the camera wanted to basically focus on Dean and uh, Zach's dynamic. And then Preston is just there to support what Dean is saying. Yeah, I, you know, it, you were saying like we didn't really hear much of him. I we didn't also really hear how he thought about this bet. Like he was kind of the third party in it, but he really plays no significant role in it. He doesn't really, you know, he's not really kind of the good angel to uh, Paul Walker's bad angel on Freddie Prince Jr.'s shoulder, which would have at least made his role a little bit more significant. He's just kind of like on board for whatever, and I think his whole thing is like he doesn't like to stir stir the boat or stir shit up, and it's almost as if he is a black man in the white man's world who's just trying to get by and again i don't know if that's the intention but that's the only way to read how he has no opinion about what's going on yeah i see i thought that was really interesting because he a he literally says hey i'm out of it this is between you two but you were present as you pointed out christy you were present you were there you're almost like efficient or like overseer of the bet in general like that's almost your role and then additionally to me I think it says something that um they didn't really want to give him any weight so, but they don't want to make him an unlikable character so they don't make him choose but they also that makes him like lacking any depth as a character because he's almost just there as kind of as Freddie Prince Jr.'s conscience, but like not actively so, but just kind of like, hey, you guys, do you want to make this into a bet? Should it be official? It's almost like he is more protective of the male relationships and negotiator between Paul Walker and Freddie Prince Jr., but like to hell with everything else and everyone else. I, I kind of think that's a great segue into the next 
part, I, I don't know if you guys have anything specific to say about any other people of color. Um, I do. There are a few okay, things okay, that okay. I want to pull out. Um, we already talked about a lot of, there were, I, I literally tried to count all of the people of color that I saw. Um, unfortunately, there's not a lot of Asian or- I think I saw uh, one. Like yeah, leaning yeah. <laughs> over a balcony. There's like very few other, uh, even I think the only Hispanics that I tracked was, uh, I think his name is Click, uh, who does the beatboxing with the two black kids. Because of uh, course he does. Yeah, because of exactly. course they could. That's all black kids have to rap about is getting white women elected to office. Thank you. Another thing that I wanted to talk about were the, the rap scene because there's just two black kids who are going back and forth. I was like, you're telling me that these two black men are just only obsessed and concerned about the two white girls in their school who are running for prom queen. They don't have their own interests. They don't have their own favorite person of color that they are looking for are like third party candidate there's nothing Siege. else it's just no 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 <laughs> these two white women are the center of everyone's conversation <laughs> that's that's the way high school is i i, I that's how i remember it <laughs> um and and then there is also i want to talk about that and then i wanted to talk about the art performance because we have a little person who his only line is i want to be like mike which again it's like I, like it's so layered the, the, the way that that doesn't hold up that I was very very uh, interested in what you guys thought. Yeah, and I I think that that whole scene is meant to drive this narrative that Lainey like really isn't this easy makeover. She's alternative in some way because she hangs out with non uh, normative atypical folk, right? Like you look at the audience in there and it's all like a, a woman with a shaved head and like piercings and tattoos and you know, and and I think that's really literally the only reason that that scene exists is that we have to see that that Zach's life is sports and prom king and college. And like all she has is art and like no ambition to do anything else. Uh, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And then also, so the, the only, the last person that I will put into under representation report is um, Lainey's brother, whose uh, name I'm, I'm blanking on right Aaron now. Aaron Culkin? Yeah, but the, the reason why I'm putting him is he is physically challenged in this movie. Like you see his earpiece, he's supposed to be like deaf or something. And even though it's not the focal point of his character, um, I will say that I thought that that was interesting to have a character who clearly does have some physical needs. Um, and that's not the sum total of his story um, or story arc. Even though he is seen as a loser and like below the nerds in terms of high school, at least at the very least, he has some kind of um, what what is it agency in, in the storyline. The fact that I didn't even really pay attention to that much goes to show like how much attention the story pays to it. And I kind of wish the story would have done the same thing with like women and people of color, like. Oh, was that an issue? I didn't even know this. Like that, like everything else is so over the top that when something subtle like that happens, I, I really do appreciate it. And I wish there was maybe a little bit more um, of that kind of normalcy placed on things that are in fact very normal um, instead of just kind of like, I don't know, really focusing on a lot of the other themes of this movie that don't really hold up as well. Yeah, and I think like to touch on 
the women of the movie, I don't think there was any of them that really had any other ambition but to be popular and prom queen. Meanwhile, Zach has like this fully fleshed out character of choosing between Ivy League schools and we never hear what these girls want to do after high school. It's just to be prom queen. And then there's also this trope that girls are out to get each other and it's like a girly girl world to the top. And that even there's a scene where Rachel Lee Cook draws a clown face on um, this character that's bullying her. Which, first of all, we need to talk about that character trying to talk her into suicide. What the fuck is that? <laughs> and, and I think at every level of the female friendships, there's some sort of um, conflict there. There's some sort of trying to usurp one or the other in whatever uh, you know, arena they're trying to be in. And yes, I want to talk about that scene because I think that's a crime now. I think yeah, we can totally. touch we can touch on it in like the holdup, but I remember I, that scene and I just thought to myself watching it, I'm like, yo, she would be in jail right now if Lainey really did follow through on this. Yeah, yeah. Let's go ahead and, and transition into the holdup, because I think that's a great point. And in the holdup, we just kind of talk about things that don't really age very well. And I was I completely forgot that they tried to get her to kill herself. And and the the makeup scene later on in the bathroom makes so much more sense now to me as like I because I always thought about that. I was like, why did she do that again? Oh, she was just being bullied into suicide, which is just absolutely insane. Yeah, and and I think too, it's like they're picking on this girl. She's sad because her mom died guys like she's going through a lot like give the girl a break absolutely i love that you pointed that out because when i was watching i wanted to talk about that character in general because that character is um such an asshole for no reason like from from what we can see and don't get me wrong kids are evil i get that but like the idea that she would not only like try to neg her into killing herself but also that she would kind of say the statement i thought that she would say something along the lines in the bathroom in that bathroom scene i thought that she would be like hey um how does it feel being popular now that you know you just kind of got clicked out of nowhere like i thought it would be some kind of some moment statement. of redemption well, I know I actually thought it would be some kind of statement on being like Invited going from a nobody, yeah. yeah, going from a nobody to a somebody and um kind of like making Lainey feel like she should reassess and is she getting caught up in this world? Like that's what I thought we would get from it. But instead we get this woman who just goes to her and she's like, How does it feel to be here knowing that you're cleaning up my vomit, even though I have a full ride to any school I want to and I'm rich and like you will always be second to me and I was like that came out of nowhere like <laughs> that Aggressive. actually brought up a really interesting point that I don't feel like the rest of the movie really goes into which was like a class difference like that was the only time that Lainey's class got really kind of brought into the idea of why she might be an outsider because like oh I'm this uh, the daughter of this rich doctor I think is what she says kind of like poking at the fact that Lainey's dad is like a pool cleaner or something or does yard work or something um landscaping and so it, that was just really interesting to kind of add it and i wish there was more of that because that whole like um i don't know pretty and pink wrong side from the, of the tracks kind of storyline that kind of makes sense as to why she might be bullied because other than that you're right she's like they just take her glasses off and give her a haircut. There's no major transformation She's that happens. Gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because her her dad is a pool like he's a pool guy. But as her dad points out, 
I own my own business. It's like, like I, they have I'm a providing. beautiful home. Exactly. So the idea that she would be uh, made fun of for not being as rich as the rest of them. Again, it's high school. You and I both live in LA. You know exactly how her dad could own a business and still get made fun of for not making enough money. No, I'm saying I do get it. But like the idea that she's poor in any sense of the word because her father runs a pool cleaning business. And like even there's a, a scene with Taylor where Taylor's like, isn't your dad my pool guy? And it's like, okay, so what does that have to do with anything? Like, like That's why? what I mean. There has to be a major wealth gap because Dulé Hill's house, I always thought took place, I always thought that party scene took place in like a mall or they were actually at his dad's, dad's dealership. dealership. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that can't be their fucking house because it looks like a hotel. It's very strange that he, there's that much wealth. And Elaney lives in a pretty, you know, a nice house, but a more average house. Yeah, I just think that it would be very interesting um, when we're talking about what holds up to see this movie looked at from the class differences as we've talked about. Um, like, because it's brought up, but it's just not explored in any real way. Um, and so I feel like very often with this movie, there are plenty of threads where you're like, ooh, are we going somewhere with that? Oh, no. Okay, well then. <laughs> yeah, okay. So that's one of the things that I really felt like didn't hold up very well. Um, I, I already talked about how this movie kind of glorifies whiteness and kind of has people of color there just to uphold characters uh, who are white. Um, but I, I kind of want to talk about what, Christine, what your thoughts are as far as just like, the misogyny and kind of like rape culture of this movie, because I feel as though the whole bet scene, even though Freddie Prince Jr.'s character ultimately like is found out by Lainey Boggs, she forgives him fairly quickly. He receives no kind of public, um, you know, consequence for this bet for treating women this way. Um, I don't know that this movie does anything to stop another bet like this from happening with another group of kids who see this movie. So I, I guess I was kind of wondering what your thoughts were of how this movie contributes to sexual harassment and rape culture and all these conversations that are happening and kind of lets it by. Like, at least I got the impression that it kind of let those things by without much consequence. Yeah, I think if someone wanted a movie that perfectly encapsulated what heteronormative gender roles were at the time <laughs> and probably still, like this movie is it, right? And there were so many points where Freddie Pinch Jr. is posed as this hero for Lainey, but really what you did was microaggression her into changing everything she was to be accepted by a group that didn't want her. And when they did reject her, you're sort of there to pick up the pieces and somehow you're the hero. And I think in that way, that trope that, what I got from it was that women are to, to fit into a mold that is approved by the men in, in and around them. Uh, even if those men aren't friends, even if they're strangers, um, there, there's a mold for you to fit in, for you to be accepted. And um, like I said earlier, like none of the women seem to have any ambition other than being popular. And yet we see like these guys who are athletes and they're applying to colleges and they sort of be to seem, seem to be running the, the storyline and all the female characters sort of fit in like accessories. 
So to add to that, what I thought was really interesting about this movie when I first saw it is that when I, I have a whole segment in my notes called In Defense of Taylor. And the reason why that is, is because when Taylor shows up, I'm like, so what did she do wrong? She comes back from uh, summer vacation or whatever. And the first thing that she does is she breaks up with Freddie Prince Jr.'s character because she's like, hey, I don't think this is working. She, it's not like she strings him along. It's not like she is excessively cheating on him and it's unaware. She is just upfront about the fact that she no longer wants to be in a relationship with him, which to me is very direct. It's very honest. Right. And she what else do you need to know? Yeah, that's like, what else do you need to know? And then additionally, when he does ask, she's like, look, if you want to torture yourself, fine. She gives him the full truth. And I saw her character, especially in the beginning of the film. Of course, things change midway through and she's kind of given a villain backstory. But in the beginning of the film, however, she is just aware of her role as the most popular girl. And she is aware that, like, I, even when she's, like, dismissive of people, I look at who she's dismissive of. And it's guys who are trying to touch her. And I was like, it's funny how she's painted as a bitch. She's painted as someone who doesn't care about others. But the only evidence that we see to that, especially in the beginning, is the fact that she broke up with Freddie Prince Jr., who... How could you do that? He's a white guy who wants to date you. What is wrong with it? <laughs> what is wrong with you for leaving him for some celebrity? And I was like, if this was reversed or if a guy did this, there would be a whole subplot about how the girl needs to pick herself back up and move on. Um, I, I, you know what? I, I have to say, I, I disagree with this, CJ, because there are aspects of that which are true which i thought like oh taylor's so mature like she's handling this like an adult she's just being upfront and saying like this is what i want i'm being honest with you i'm not gonna lie to you about what happened and i was kind of on board for that but then somehow not even in the middle of the movie once matthew lillard's character is introduced you're kind of painted like oh taylor was just trying to go for like an attention grab like she was trying to be like the like she was, she was, she was trying to ride that fame coattail, and that's why she was into Matthew Lillard. At least that's how I got that impression. Was that all of this was to try to make her more popular? And not that there's anything wrong with that, but it wasn't to be mature about her relationship with Freddie Prince Jr. as much as it was to serve herself and her own interests. Well, what I'm seeing is what's wrong with that. We have we have Pr Freddie Prince Jr. be a selfish character for the most part of this, and what I'm seeing is she is punished, like. Paul Walker's character tried to rape Lainey and he is punished. <laughs> she Hardly. broke up with, she broke up with um, Zach, Freddie Prince Jr.'s character. And then she must be punished. Like she, we see her get fed the same line that she gave to Zach in the beginning of the film. And that's supposed to be some kind of comeuppance or some kind of like see you know like you were you were chasing fame and this is what happens to you and i was like what was wrong with what she was doing she was dating at a young age which she should be allowed to do and You're for right, some reason the idea of her dating and being upfront about it is fine but when freddie prince jr was like oh i just assumed we would be going to prom together we are supposed to judge even Lainey for like not taking the time to see if Freddie Prince Jr. wanted to take. I mean, you're right. Compared to the guys, she's done nothing. We're like, the guys are so much worse in this movie than she is. Yeah, and that's I my think, whole point. And I think Taylor, when you put it that way, CJ, is a villain because she wants what another woman 
in the movie wants as if there's only one or two guys at this high school. And that's why she's the villain because we want Lainey to succeed and only one woman can be at the top. The other woman is a villain. Yeah, exactly. And I think like, again, throughout the movie, don't get me wrong from the moment she pours her drink onto Lainey, that is definitely villain behavior. Our sympathy for her as a character goes out the window. But I always think about what the character has actually done on film for us to not root for them. And at the time, she did nothing wrong before the drink was poured to her. The only thing that she did was break up with him. And she did it one-on-one. The fact that the rest of the school was interested or the rest of the school kind of took it and, and he was embarrassed by it, it's not her fault. You know, she, she took him aside and she had a private conversation. Other people listened in. Um, and I think that that's what she didn't even have like i think at the beginning of the film um i thought that gabrielle union and uh little kim would be like the ones who told him about what happened and was like so uh taylor no longer wants to be dating with you you have to go get the information from her but she didn't even do that she literally first thing she came in was like hey i want to let you know this isn't working for me i want to explore my other options dating And think about that that conversation of her just wanting to date other people is the catalyst for the entire movie of Freddie (laughs) French Jr. on this tirade to get revenge on his ex-girlfriend by using other women to make her upset. Wow. Yeah. And she's like, she's shown as being left alone uh, for prom. She doesn't get a prom date. She doesn't get anything because she has committed the sin of not wanting to be with Zach in the first place. Like, even when she tries to redeem herself, it's like, hey, we had this kind of pact. We, um, you know, will we still go together? He's like, I had other plans. We see, again, um, Paul Walker's character, who is the worst person the real villain in terms of how Lainey's treated he has a date to prom he is able to come but she's just supposed to show up by herself and the rest of the movie she is penalized uh for the drink that she poured which I will admit was bitchy and for not wanting to be with Zach which is not a sin and can we also talk about when she reminisces about going to Daytona what hotel pool in Daytona have you ever seen that's on a hill I mean, we've all been to Daytona, right? Like, it's like hot dog stands and, like, Harley-Davidson stores. A hundred percent. It's trash. (laughs) I always love when we see um, Daytona, our spring break uh, shows, uh, because almost every people from Florida, it's never that thing. And you're like, what were you watching? Where were you at? I don't know what this is. You were in L.A. You know what? On a hill. I will say that uh, people from Florida have told me that in the 90s, Florida beaches were actually pretty popping on spring break. And like MTV kind of transitioned it away from Florida at a certain point. And that's when it started to like die off from tourism. And it kind of got really sad by the time we were old enough to participate. But I do hear that there are stories of Daytona popping in like 98. But none of them were on a hill, which is her point. No, no, not at all. (laughs) This whole thing was shot in California. Absolutely. But I will say also with that scene, this is just for me. I love that storytelling montage. Like I just like this is solely a side note, but I really had fun when she's telling the story, but like interacting with the scene as well. She's like, now keep up. And like it's just like the this movie, whole movie. 
the movie had a lot of moments like that like the moment where like freddie prince jr is like having a dream i guess where he's like on the real world set and like those moments were kind of like fun i wish it kind of had like more of those moments and less of like impromptu dance scenes you know what i mean like can i say something about the dance scene did you guys know (laughs) brian friedman choreographed that brian friedman He's choreographed No Strings Attached for NSYNC and like I'm a Slave for You by Britney Spears, like super prolific, still prolific choreographer. And the only reason I noticed that is because in that scene, I noticed a backup dancer for Britney Spears. Ah. Hashtag free Britney. (laughs) (laughs) Of background characters, we, some, some of the background characters that I saw, Sarah Michelle Gellar, um, what's his name? Milo... From This Is Us, yeah. Yeah, from This Is Us. Milo Ventimiglia? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's one of the the kids who helps clean up the house. Absolutely. I just thought those were some some cool um, sightseeing. Um, The last thing I want to talk about in terms of this holding up and political and everything, we talked a lot about classism and how it deals with race. There was a little bit of homophobia in that um real world scene and it's when matthew lillard like he's having the dream or whatever and they're like he does have really nice eyes and matthew lillard says something along the lines of not to be gay or not to be queer or not to make it weird but you do have really nice eyes and that's when freddie prince that's the nightmare as if it's the nightmare and i was like why the world first of all he literally prefaced it with not to be gay or queer which is bad in and of itself but it's literally just a straight man acknowledging hey you have nice eyes <laughs> and then that to be the moment where freddie prince jr wakes up and is like oh my god this is so terrible of a dream i must wake myself from up from it i was like it's it's not that serious I, I guarantee you every straight guy has been hit on by a gay guy at least once and he just went on with his life. <laughs> Literal homophobia. Yeah. yeah. Couldn't Absolutely. stay in the dream any longer. He had a gay nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, when I'm, I'm thinking about this hold up section and things that just don't hold up, the main thing that I'm walking away with after this whole conversation is over and we stopped this podcast recording is the fact that Paul Walker tried to rape Rachel Lee Cook and it became a punchline joke. They're at the graduation. They're calling his name. Everyone is laughing. Oh, because he can't hear it because his ears got blown out because of the rape Because he tried to whistle. rape. <laughs> <laughs> and it, to me, it's the most wild part of this whole movie that everyone knows what happened with, with Paul Walker and Rachel Lee Cook. And it's become a punchline of sorts. And that the whole using a rape whistle was just so just like... Uh, uh, you know, it's like it's it's an it, it's second thought, but like that's kind of a really intense moment, and I think that that's kind of why I bring up this kind of like rape culture misogyny thing, just because I felt that the fact that he actually did get to a point where she had to use the rape whistle, and that wasn't even shown, and it's just kind of shown as a joke later, um, was just disturbing. So that's interesting because what I think is we we already like set precedent 
um, with the end of the movie being that Freddie Prince Jr. has to accept his diploma naked. And not just like, like at first they show him with like a soccer ball color covering his genitals, but then off camera, he throws the soccer ball. So I was like, so you just straight up are naked, all bits hangling. You're a child. <laughs> yeah, you're a child. Families, <laughs> naked. In front of other children. You can't live near schools after this, bro. <laughs> like you're not thinking, you know? Like what, what would have happened if he just said, I'm not doing it. Nothing, right? Absolutely nothing. Oh my God, I can't even get into the, like I told, I don't think we have time to get into the power dynamics of Freddie Prince Jr. making kids eat pizza with pubic hair on it. And I was like, you don't have to do this. Like there is, there's like this, there's like these um, unwritten rules in this school where because he's the most popular, he's literally king of high school and what he says must happen and i just found this amazing i was like there is no way in the world one person could just force you to do it on words alone like what what world do we live in where you have this much power and if so why aren't teachers or someone else interfering i think sorry oh god go ahead okay there's so much sexual harassment and stalking in this movie that I'm not surprised the rape is like a-okay because <laughs> yeah. from the beginning Lainey's like please leave me alone and Freddie Prince Jr. literally shows up to her work and her house to harass her and well, that's no. just the premise that's just the beginning <laughs> of no the doesn't story. mean no he just really likes her and cares about her a lot maybe he should be appreciative you know that. so did dean he spent three hundred dollars <laughs> on a hotel room Alicia oh my god I, I love that i spent three hundred dollars on this it's totally happening uh was so amazing really quickly um the idea that one of the other sideline characters almost seen as um I don't know, just lower class is because of his weight is um, the one character. Oh, Lainey's blonde friend. Lainey's blonde friend, who I can't think of his name right now. Oh, man, what's his name? He is in so many things. He plays Froggy on um, Daredevil, for those who know. His His name is Eldon Hansen. He plays Jesse in the movie. Yeah, he plays Jesse. His whole story arc is that he is fat and he is trying to lose weight. And he's not even that fat. Like, is he Freddie Prince Jr.? No. But, like, the way that they have his character set up, like, Rachel Lee Cook's Bro, I whole didn't realize. role in school is to make sure that he's not eating more than he should be. I don't when know. When we meet him, she's body shaming him. Yes, this yeah. is what I thought was weird. <laughs> I didn't realize this is the same kid from Mighty Ducks. This completely changes how I feel about this kid, but I, I'm, I'm sorry. He I didn't also in Butterfly Effect. I Butterfly just Effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dead. Okay. That's where um, I know him from. Yeah. Seasoned the, actor. <laughs> is this an example of, like, 90s fat? Absolutely. That whole, like, someone's fat because they're not a small? I because this, so. this kid is, like, taller, too. Again, like as someone who was like who was fat and tall in high school, I get it. But like, it wasn't my entire personality. I didn't spend all my time talking with my friends about making sure that I, you're watching what I'm eating and making sure that I only have healthy snacks around me because you know that I'm trying to lose weight. And again, it's not in the same way that which would be terrible, um, even if it was the same as uh, a, a movie that I've referred to 
several times, which is Mean Girls. And I just want to lose three pounds and like the ever present idea of having to lose weight uh, as a female. But the idea that this male's character whole story arc with the exception of when he tells Freddie Prince Jr. about the hotel. Um, everything that we hear him talk about is his weight and I just thought that was very interesting considering that he's not that fat. 100%. 100%. Uh, do you guys want to go through the Kent count? Yes. All right. So the Kent count is a new segment that we have and this is a test designed to determine whether a film or any piece of media has provided the audience with adequate representation of films of color. This is meant to encourage uh, discussion on what good representation can look like for films of color. Uh, it is not the end all be all and it is created by cultural writer Clarkisha Kent. Um, so we'll just go down the line and read. Um, there are, I believe, seven to eight points and you get a point for each one. Now, that being said, I've already looked at this and I can tell you this movie does not score well. <laughs> no. but, I wouldn't um, have guessed it. <laughs> these points are, number one, must not solely be a walking stereotype trope. And I did give it points for this. I did too, yeah. Yule Hill and Gabrielle Union, they're not 100% stereotypes. No. Um, they're not given any backstory, but that's the problem for number two, which is must have their own plot and narrative arc. Which is nobody absolutely no. <laughs> must not be solely included in the narrative just for the purpose of holding down a male character in his story. I feel like they get a point for that. Gabrielle Union and Lil Kim aren't there for a male, they're there for a woman, but not a male. Uh, well, the whole part two to that is must solely not be included in the narrative to prop up a white female character. All That's- of Taylor's friends. All of them. <laughs> so I was like, any point they would have gained for that, they completely lost with the next one. Must not solely exist in the film or for the purpose of fetishization, which I gave it a point for because no one's really fetishized in this film. Uh, I feel like uh... I don't know, bro. I feel like the people really? of color in here are actually like trying uh, if cultural appropriation falls under fetishism and like fetishism of black culture because what the hell is usher doing in this movie if not that you know what i'm completely willing (laughs) i'm willing to like let this be because for me i just saw it and maybe this was my mindset i saw it as like sexual fetishization and i didn't really see that present no you're right you're right like gabrielle union isn't called the prettiest black girl in school you know what i mean totally but uh, if you guys don't want to give it this point, I'm completely fine with that. You let me know. I, I, you I know, don't. I, <laughs> I don't think I do either, only because I think the main two characters are fetishized, Taylor and Lainey. And even though they're white women, um, they're still used as a prop to create the sort of ideal woman that a, a dude would like to fuck. Like, you know, totally. get your tits out, Lainey. Pipe that skirt up, put on some heels, you know? And so I think in that way, they do fail. Okay, all right. So um, they does not get a point for that. Then we have must have at least one interaction with another woman or femme of color. They actually get one for that, for little Kim and Gabby. Yep, little Kim and Gabby have a little back and forth. And then again, if we are giving, well, I don't know if we're giving Tamara Mello um, <laughs> but she is brown and she, she she's uh, European brown it's not the she's same tan. Bro. she's all right she's uh, I would these, love to I, I looked it up 
It said she was from Portuguese descent, right? She said it says French, Portuguese, Latino. So I think that means she's Brazilian, but she led with (laughs) French, which is what is confusing me. So we got to ask Tamara Mellon what color she thinks she is. Hit us up. We want to know. Like I said, she's a racially ambiguous catch-all in this movie. I love it. I would love to see where we go with this moving forward because I'm really loving the discussions we're having over what counts and what doesn't. Uh, And then the final point would be must not be go-to character to sacrifice themselves in in the film or piece of media. I don't think there's a sacrifice in this movie other than Lainey is kind of like her, like her reputation, humiliation is kind of put out there, but I don't really know of a person of color that falls into that yeah i agreed i couldn't think of one either Hmm. all right so that being said uh this this film gets two points out of the entire system uh which means that it has a a rating of pathetic representation of women in films of color seems about right honestly (laughs) pathetic love it um all right and now our final segment called take the lead where we imagine how this movie would be different if a person of color uh, or from a marginalized community took center stage Uh, i will allow you two to go first please give us your feedback or your ideas of how this movie could be better better i don't know but (laughs) i do know if Lainey had my Filipino parents, none of this shit would have happened. Dude, like, who the fuck is this on the driveway? Like, why are you studying art in school? Like, aren't they teaching you math? Like, what the fuck is going on? It never would have happened. So, unfortunately, there are no Filipino people in this movie. So, I can't imagine how that character would take center stage. But I think the person that I would like to see um a movie done about is debbie morgan's character as the art teacher because she is sort of this person that changes kids lives in high school and she's obviously nursing this poor girl laney out of thoughts of suicide so i just want to know what her life is like and the students she interacts with and what happens in her classroom Hmm. absolutely that is that's very interesting uh t what do you got um, you know, looking at this movie, it's funny when we first see the high school introduced it, there's so many people of color just kind of in the background that to me, this movie feels like it could very easily be remade in the same sense that like, um, what was that Nick Cannon movie? Um, can't not can't buy me love uh, love don't cost a thing like that kind of like you could very easily do a, a black or cultural version of this movie i think without changing a lot of the storyline around um when i think about like a remake of this movie i feel like i would want to cast a woman of color in laney's role i just feel like it would just make it more interesting um for me i thought of uh i'm forgive me if i'm saying this right marseille martin she is uh in the show blackish um she is about 16 years old which makes her like the right age for a movie like this like to see it be age appropriate um and she's always kind of played as the nerd whenever i've seen her in that or the movie little she was in um but she has kind of grown to be like this really gorgeous woman and so like i feel like her transformation scene would be pretty dope for for a movie like this so um that's that's kind of how i feel like this movie could get a little better but at the same time as christine said there's not a lot of meat on this bones to begin with i will say that this movie is a uh, a remake of a stage play called pygmalion 
So mm-hmm. it, like this, this, this story is, has kind of like existed in various forms. So, I mean, if you could kind of look at it from like a Shakespearean, like much ado about nothing, like kind of mix up them. Um, I guess that's kind of fun to watch, but other than that, the, the story is kind of flat. Well, so I think that was interesting because there are parts in this movie where it's clearly based on a stage play. Like, I can't remember what, but there was like a moment where I was watching. I was like, this feels like it was formally on stage and and we're just going through these beats or kind of through the motion. I think it was the scene where they talk about, like, they're kind of setting it up. You know, we get this like my fair lady type thing where they're like, we can take anyone off the street and make them into someone worse. I think they also do it with uh, trading places uh, is when we do it with like class and race. So I think that that interpretation, even like if we talk about like the trading places idea is Breaking it a person of color or again what happens when we just go back to freddie prince jr's character and we actually make him um hispanic or latino like what yeah. is that character like what it's so much more interesting his relationship with his father becomes more interesting um like his sister like there's so many things that i feel could be explored when you're talking about a a male person of color um a male person of color, a male of color <laughs> um, in a role of authority and how fragile that is um, and the expectations and the pressures that come with that. Like, I really think that there's something there. Or as always, um, not always, but I do think it'd be interesting to see what this would be like if we made it, um, if we not didn't do a gender swap, but kind of a sexual orientation swap. Like I Make haven't queer, seen, yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen this kind of, made from a gay perspective or you know what will happen if freddie prince jr was supposed to make some gay kid the prom king and see what happens there maybe even a love interest um, comes about i i think that this generation or the next generation is primed for these kind of storytellings and i really think that it would be uh worth looking into i also feel like this is a prime candidate for like a miniseries or like, you know, like yeah. a Netflix miniseries. Cause there totally. was just so many roads that you could go down. And I felt like I would love to spend more time with the characters of color. 100% bro, 100%. All right, you guys, thank you so much. That is our episode. Uh, thank you, Christine. Yes, Christine, thank you for joining us. We're so excited to get more of your, your perspective, more of your thoughts. You are bringing so much to the table as, uh, you know, a co-host of ours. And we're really excited to see, you know, what's going to come next for, you know, our conversations with you. Ooh, I got to pick a good one for the next one. I'm really regretting that she's all that choice. So <laughs> I'm going to think a little longer and harder for the next one. I'm actually really excited. I think I know, but our next pick will be TC. T, you get to choose our next film. So do you have any ideas or do you want to share with our listeners? Okay, so the way I'm going to choose this, because the way we're doing it this season is that we're each p- picking three movies. So I want to pick a movie that represented me very, very positively, a movie that represented me very negatively, and one that I feel... Um, could have used more representation. So I'm starting with a movie that represented me very positively. And I'm of course talking about the fucking classic 1993 movie, Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit. Um, To me, this was the 
the first time that I saw kids of color in a way that they felt familiar. And, um, you know, I'm just really, really excited to talk about this movie that's so diverse at a time where we really didn't get a lot of that. And so it's, it's, um, I'm really excited to talk about it. I'm, I, I'm really, this is one of the movies that I'm like, do I need to watch it? Because I've seen it so many times as a child. Um, and it's so, such a big part of like black culture where you can like talk and make references, but I am excited to get everyone else's feedback and, and see ways that this could be better in 2020 because they are coming out with a third one, which we'll talk more about next week. I'm sure we will. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys again for listening to Movie Makeover. You can find us on Instagram at Movie Makeover Pod or email us at moviemakeoverpod at gmail.com. Again, this is our When We See Us series where we talk about movies that we saw ourselves in and want to talk more about representation. If you guys have suggestions, please let us know. Reach out. You can find me on Twitter at I Am Not Your Oreo, um, T and Christine. You can find me on Instagram at a braver me at braver.me. And you can find me at, at curated dry goods. If you guys have any thoughts about uh, She's All That specifically, please uh, interact with us on social media. We'd love to get your thoughts on what you think of this film, how you think it represented women and people of color. Um, you know, we are, this is, this is, the podcast was kind of made for conversation. So um, we definitely want to get your thoughts out there as the, the listeners. I'm especially curious, like, what other girls of color would have experienced if they were Laney, because my parents would not have been having that shit. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, make over and out. My quote for this will be, can't let it drop. <laughs> Eventually. Exactly. It, it's got to <laughs> drop. <laughs> <laughs>